Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. I am now joined by Samantha Melamed, who is an investigative reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer. She digs into stories about how injustice, corruption, and government dysfunction impact Philadelphians and explores what we can do about it. Her fine work as a reporter is on display in the Inquirer's investigative series, Crumbling City, which looks at the devastating problem of Philly row houses being damaged or collapsing even due to adjacent construction by new housing development. Welcome to Solutions on WRD, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me, Amadi. Well, um, you know, on this show, we've talked a lot about um, issues related to overdevelopment in the city. We've talked about the 10-year tax abatement, spurring development, um, gentrification, um, the, the tax burden being then placed on existing home owners. Um, but what you're looking at in this series is really another more immediate hazard um, of development in the city that has led to home damage, building collapses, and even death. Talk about the scale of this problem and maybe give some examples of what you've uncovered in your reporting and investigation of this situation of damage to adjacent housing when when new buildings are are either torn down or or uh, developed next door. Just to lay the groundwork, um, part part of why this is such a big problem in Philadelphia is that we're a city with. Uh, some of the most row houses in the nation and some of the oldest housing stock. And the, the way that these houses were built was whole blocks at a time, you know, often like 80, 90, 100 years ago. And they were built on these foundations of rubble, which is a term for a rough stone that's held together with little or no mortar. And then they have these uh, nine inch thick party walls that are um, made out of just two, two rows of brick. So, it's a very stable construction as a whole row, but when you start to knock out pieces of that, as has happened in Philly, and then, um, and then even more dangerously, when you start to, you want to dig out those basement apartments or for the new row houses, they want to, um, have a livable basement. They, they end up digging below, um, these old rubble foundations and it becomes very easy for these houses to become destabilized and, uh, for the houses to collapse um, or for there to be fractures, for people's facades to start bowing out, um, for all sorts of things to happen. That, And so we started digging into this and digging into the city's uh, data that they, that they put out on the open data Philly portal. And we found uh, me and my uh, collaborator, data reporter, Dylan Purcell, we found that about 50 row houses each year are deemed unsafe or imminently dangerous by LNI, the city's Department of Licenses and Inspections, during construction next door. And that isn't even counting all the other houses that are damaged, but they don't, the city, for whatever reason, doesn't consider them to be unsafe or imminently dangerous. So it's a pretty big problem, especially when you consider that these are only occupied row houses where people are being, you know, some in some cases, either being displaced or just literally telling me that they're living in houses that they um, are afraid are going to fall down on them. So, 
you know, I met a family uh, in uh, North Square where and they and they pointed out, you know, three or four different houses in their neighborhood that are all dealing with the same issue. Um, and the family was living in this house where where you know, fairly modest work had been done next door, but it had been done recklessly. The facade had been removed and and the rear wall had been removed and their facade was pulling away. They had braced their house, their floor was sinking and, and they're just, they don't, they don't know what to do. And I also uh, spoke with a couple of guys who were in a house next to a construction site where excavation was happening next door. And um, it actually collapsed while they were in there. And one of them fell two stories and thankfully survived. But, you know, they're both um, they're both just they told me both of them told me that they feel like they're homeless because they lost everything they had and are just sort of trying to get back on their feet now. And um, unfortunately, there's no real recourse for them except for to sue. So even though the city has done a lot to try to um, to try to put in place uh, stricter building requirements and uh, notification requirements for neighbors, ultimately, you know, you have to decide if you want to risk putting up all that money to hire a lawyer, if you might not get enough to cover the legal fees. And and, you know, from what what I. I read in in your pieces, um, there's your several articles about all of the kind of dimensions of this problem. You know, there's there's, you know, people are stuck with unaffordable repairs to their homes if 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 they are repairable. Number one, some homes collapse. Some homes have you know such bad ongoing problems as a result of the development next door, like ongoing water getting into their property and causing mold. I mean, just ongoing issues. Um, you know, some of the repairs are unaffordable to most people. Um, legal representation feels financially out of reach. Um, then they maybe are forced to move to a new place and rent. Um, and the rents are too high where they're going because they were previously in a place that maybe was in a house that was in their family for years where they didn't have to pay rent. Um, and then these are the same people that, um, get preyed upon by developers who see a crumbling house and, you know, they're, they're the folks who are saying, we'll buy your house for cheap. We pay cash, you know, those kind of things. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a trap for people who are in these, these, you know, homes, old row homes. Um, and there's a, there's a racial dimension to this because part of what you point out in your reporting is that, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the places where this is happening are in formerly redlined neighborhoods. And on this show a lot, we've talked about the redlined neighborhoods as the, the historically the sites of a lot of poverty and ongoing issues that are compounded by lack of investment in these areas. Can you just talk about the racial dimensions of this problem also? That's absolutely right. So we found uh, 80% of the houses that we found were damaged during construction were in formerly redlined areas. Um, and if people can't picture, that's basically like the whole residential inner circle around Center City, Philadelphia, 
was redlined. So it include, of course, um, neighborhoods that were black, also neighborhoods like Fishtown that were um, like had ethnic white populations um, or immigrant white populations. Um, and so uh, I, I focused on uh, Point Breeze and North Square in as two case studies because um, Point Breeze is a an area that had been um, had been a, a black community and and has had seen rapid gentrification. It's just an epicenter. If you look at where stop work orders are, which is something that the city uh, licensing and inspections department issues when there's a like really serious construction violation. They're really concentrated in Point Breeze. When you look at um, all sorts of serious violations as well as construction damage, that's sort of an epicenter for it. And then in North Square, which was a Puerto Rican area that where property values have also skyrocketed and median incomes have grown dramatically, um, the same thing is happening there. Um, so, of course, it's also happened in Fishtown and um, and South Philly and, and all those neighborhoods that were, you know, there was so much disinvestment. And, of course, um, with redlining, what those maps were was that that was guidance to mortgage lenders. So those were places where people couldn't necessarily tap equity to repair their homes. And obviously, if you do have years of deferred maintenance on your home and then someone comes in and does construction next door, like your home might not be in the best shape. And so that, you know, creates an an even bigger problem because um, it's like, where is the liability? How do you prove liability? And of course, as you know, um, many people who are um, living in those areas may have tangled title issues. So that means that they might not have homeowners insurance. They might not be able to get it because their name isn't on the property. And so then um, they're really in trouble. And so, yeah, they're so vulnerable because, um, you know, there are like all these home repair programs that the city has, but I'm also, I, you know, I hear people also having trouble accessing those programs when they have Tangle Title. Community Legal Services um, has a Tangle Title project that they've been working on, I think, to try to help people with this. And they also recently um, uh, told me that, um, that they actually finally did get some funding for legal aid. So starting next year, they're going to have a lawyer working on this full time that people will be able to uh, access that help to try to uh, get some assistance if they're dealing with this. That lawyer will be very busy based on <laughs> your reporting and all of yeah. the cases of this. I mean, again, 50 homes a year on average, plus all of the ones that are not even reported on. Um, one of the things you talked about two in in your pieces is the way that um and i think your piece that really specifically really honed in on what's happening in point breeze is the way that racial disparities experienced by people in these formerly red blind neighborhoods are kind of compound on each other um contributing to overall financial ruination if this happens to happen next to next door to you so um I think you highlighted a family where um, it's like, you know, because because the house was was so severely damaged. Um, I, I can't remember the specifics of the story, but, yeah. you know, somebody's in jail. You can't use your house as as uh, 
collateral for bail. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things that that are compounded when you have damage to a house. Uh, yeah, so that was the, the Flamer family. Um, right, Olive, right. Olivia Flamer had that had been her family home for decades, and it was it was everything. It was shelter. It was a place where they could take an extended family, and it was a place that they could uh, use to secure bail if someone got into trouble. And what happened was right as their house, um, right as their house collapsed during construction next door, right after construction had happened next door. Um, their son was in jail facing uh, murder charges for a crime that he maintains he's innocent of. That was the murder of his cousin, who actually also had grown up in that house with him. Um, and because his father was incarcerated. Um, and, uh, and sadly, you know, his mother had hired a lawyer. She was really confident. He was really confident. He believed in, uh, her son Marvin's innocence, but then she couldn't hire the lawyer anymore. She had to let him go. And, you know, the case went to trial. He was convicted and he's still in prison. And, um, they, they lost the lot to sheriff sale and they, they've never, that was 10 years ago and they've never been homeowners again. Um, and they don't, they don't expect to be, it was just this absolutely ruinous thing that they still haven't recovered from. Now, a couple of people in, in your articles talked about the situation of, you know, this, what I would again refer to as overdevelopment in Philadelphia, um, they talk about this as the Wild West. Two separate people were quoted as saying, one, one an LNI staffer who spoke to you um, anonymously or, you know, was quoted on anonymity, an, an agreement of anonymity. Um, and then somebody who had, who had, you know, who the home that they were living in had collapsed or was severely damaged. They both kind of independently of each other referred to this as the Wild West. So talk about, number one, what the role of the 10-year tax abatement has been in uh, spurring on this Wild West scenario and just kind of the ecosystem of corruption, lax standards, you know, lax oversight has that has been created. Um, so I guess I'm basically asking you to describe what is this Wild West situation that we find ourselves in. I can't even tell you how many people that it almost became a joke. People would, would say oh, it's the Wild West. I mean, contractors, inspectors. Hmm. Um, I called someone, hopefully we can talk about this later, but I called someone in London to ask about the system that they have there. And I told him what we have here. And he was like, oh, it's the Wild West. <laughs> so um, so every, everybody's I mean, using that. You know, I realize yeah. we're, we're up on our break. So let's let's take this break. We'll leave that as the cliffhanger. Those who are listening, you can uh, stay tuned and you'll hear about the Wild West of Philadelphia uh, overdevelopment uh, with with our guest, Samantha Malamed, Inquirer investigative reporter for Crumbling City series uh, on the other side of this break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Solutions exclusively on Word Radio, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Welcome back to Solutions on WURD Progressive Black Talk Media on air and online at wordradio.com. This is Amadi Braxton. I'm back with Samantha Melamed, who is investigative reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer and author of a series of really uh, compelling articles and 
enraging articles to me about uh, the problem of damage to adjacent homes during uh, development projects next door um, and damage, irreparable damage, sometimes housing collapses uh, when you have uh, buildings being built right adjacent. So um, we left uh, before the break with me posing the question of, uh, can you describe what has contributed to Philadelphia being seen as the Wild West in terms of development? Yeah. So um, if I can, I think um, one example that sort of could walk you through it is an example of a couple of homes that were being actually not newly built, but were renovated with newly excavated basements um, in Kensington. And I found out about these when I was contacted by the homeowners who were actually suing the builder. They had bought their house less than a year earlier and were discovering like tons of problems with their homes. It was a total nightmare scenario for both of them. And so what they started to find out is that there are supposedly all these levels of inspection that are happening. But in their case, like the inspections didn't happen. Like there is supposed there was supposed to be a special inspector, which is a privately contracted engineer on site to um, review the underpinning that was happening, which is the process of reinforcing the foundation while digging down to deepen it. And um, and that didn't seem to happen. And in fact, it's not clear who signed off on the forms uh, saying it did happen because the engineer's name was misspelled. <laughs> His first and last name was misspelled. Uh, there was supposed to be an electrical, there were electrical problems. And first of all, their electrical warranty was from an unlicensed electrician. And when I called the the electrician whose name was on the permit, um, it became clear that, you know, he couldn't get a story straight with the electrician whose name was on the warranty. So I don't know if he sold him the permit or or what, but, you know, there's no guarantee that if a licensed electrician's name is on the permit, that that licensed electrician did the work. And then there's a third party. The electrician gets to select their own third party electrical inspector to inspect the work. But the electrical inspectors, you know, they a lot of them have pretty extensive history of being cited by the city for overlooking serious electrical violations, but they're still able to do the work. Um, So, Mm. yeah. So even though there is on paper, a lot of different safeguards in place. The question is how often is this actually happening in practice? And, um, and I think, you know, our system in Philly is very much complaint driven. Um, LNI acknowledges that according to the LNI's budget presentation, each inspector was responsible for almost a thousand building permits. Um, and so between the short staffing and uh, just the complaint-driven nature of the system, um, and what some would say is just a culture of impunity that that has fostered, that that sort of all goes together to contribute to this wild, wild west reputation. So, in the in this anecdote you described, which is featured in one of the articles about you know homeowners who buy these new homes that are being built that may have caused damage to the adjacent buildings. But even though the people who are buying those new homes are often dealing with or can deal with serious problems because, again, a lack of this lack of oversight and lack of uh, uh, this, this, yeah, this lacks culture in terms of L&I and um, upholding building standards. 
Um, so what, I guess, what is the solution to this, to this myriad, uh, problem? Because, um, there's, again, this, we had, we had this major building collapse at, um, was it 20th and market, the, the Salvation Army building uh, quite a number of years ago that um, was supposed to, that was, you know, where I think, what was, was it, seven people were killed? Uh, a number of people were seriously injured. Um, and that was supposed to be a turning point moment for the city in terms of really reevaluating its approach to development and um, safety and public safety. Um, but we are still having situations like buildings collapsing in residential blocks and things like that. What do you think are some of the ways that this can be addressed? And, you know, it, it seems like there's a, ho a holistic approach and a more preventative approach needed because you're saying that part of the problem is that this is a complaint driven system. And so it's only when people call in to complain that any action, if any action at all is taken, could be taken? Yeah. So I think the good news is that there are definitely a lot of things that could be done. Um, one thing that I've been looking into, I'm working on another story uh, that will be out in the next week or so, um, is, is a system that they have in England um, and Wales, uh, because London is a city with, I think, even more uh, row houses and therefore more party walls than Philadelphia. Um, so they have this thing called the party wall act. And basically if you want to do construction, you have to notify your neighbor. And if they through, through what's called a party wall surveyor, and then, um, if, if they, uh, if they don't agree, then that party wall surveyor become has to sort of oversee what becomes an arbitration process. They go in, they document the condition of both properties, and then they come up with an award that says, yes, you do have to allow the necessary access to your property. Um, but uh, here are all the conditions and here's what the developer is going to do to make sure your property is protected. And then if there's damage, Whoever's building that is strictly liable for uh, the damage to your property. So the develop the party wall surveyor can order them to actually pay you. And, and that's all without anyone having to go to court. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a really cool way to potentially make sure that people are protected and um, and to provide a level of access to justice in a setting that doesn't require you know, tens of thousands of dollars in, in legal fees. Um, I think here, uh, the city did take a big step in January of introducing a requirement to notify neighbors. And, you know, I think the point that uh, community legal services is making is that the more that people are educated about um, their own rights and what those rights confer to them that and how they can leverage those rights to protect themselves, um, that that can really um, be something that people can use. I mean, I, I hate I hate for it to be on the on the neighbors to to protect themselves, but that's kind of where we are right now. So if I can just address like what those steps are, Basically, you know, in order to build, you know, on a row house lot, you're going to have to get on the neighbor's property to put on siding or seal up the roofs. So 
so the 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 idea is that you could negotiate an access agreement um and that could include maybe getting an engineer survey your you know money for your own engineer to study your house before any work begins to make sure that you have you have a baseline assessment of what the conditions are or it could include you know at having the developer add you as a beneficiary to their insurance in case any damage occurs or actual like money for every day that they are trying to access your property those are all things that that i understand have been um included I think the other solution that I think is really important to consider is um, how we can deter or eliminate these risky, um, these really risky uh, excavations that are happening next to row houses. So uh, the former, a former LNI commissioner, David Perry, suggested to me that maybe we should just ban excavations that go deeper than, you know, right up to a row house and require um, underpinning to reinforce the row house foundation because it's just too risky. Or And can you just say a word about, just say a word about um, why people are digging so deep in these new constructions? So some people say that the that sort of goes back to the 2012 remake of the zoning code, which set in residential areas, I, I think, a pretty uniform height limit of 38 feet. And so everyone wants to get a full height basement and then a three-story row house and a roof deck, whatever. So, so the move is just if you can dig like three or four feet deeper, than what a normal row house basement would be, then you can get that depth to pack in that extra floor and, you know, have like the the basement bedroom that people want. And, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's what's motivating a lot of this. So I asked uh, Vincent Viney of V2 Properties about this because he's a developer who has had a bunch of run-ins with neighbors over allegations of damage to their properties. And and he said, you know, that zoning code sort of uh, binds the hands of developers like him. And one way to, you know, one way to address it would be to like, let them have a few extra feet if they're next to a row house of height. And then they, you know, they won't have the incentive to dig down, which after all is expensive, even if you're not, you know, it's expensive to do. I think, you know, some people tell me that if you're doing it right, it's like $100,000 to do all that, you know, to all, do all that extra reinforcement, um, you know, and if you're doing it on the cheap, then it becomes really dangerous. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so I think these, these changes could be in the zoning code, they could be in the building code. And then, um, you know, obviously, um, LNI needs to be uh, adequately staffed to be able to keep up with yeah. all the construction. Yeah. Well, we're out of time. I want to thank you, Samantha Malamed, for all of your great investigation and reporting on this issue, which I think has flown under the radar for the general public, unless you happen to be a homeowner who's who's had this experience of having damage to your home due to adjacent um, construction um, we'll look out for your next upcoming article where I think you're kind of going to kind of going to go through some of the solutions to this problem um, systemically. Um, and we look forward to maybe having you back on in the future. 
You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com. 